This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. I'm so glad that you're here today. This is Pastor Ethan Moore, and today is Sunday, September the 25th, 2022. I want to thank you for listening as we continue now into our current study, which is Paul's letter to the Colossians, the letter of Colossians in the New Testament. You know, a few years ago, I read a book where the author was exploring how there are things, wonderful things, right? Perspectives, understandings, wisdom, things of the heart that God sincerely wants to give us. And yet, we so often don't receive them. And one of the big reasons we don't, one of the reasons we miss out, is that to receive what God wants to give, we first must trust. We must really trust God. Believe that what he says is true. Things about him, about us, about other people, about the nature of his power and his presence, his plan, his work. And guys, maybe we don't trust, we don't believe, well, in one case, because of pride. I mean, we have ourselves, our own resources, so why compromise or surrender my control to God? I'm doing just fine. But maybe another reason, and this is so often true, that people, that we just don't trust God, is because we've been hurt. Something happened to us, or maybe it's ongoing right now, that causes us to doubt God's existence. Or as people who do believe in God, even we'd say we believe in Jesus and believe in the Bible to the extent we understand it, we struggle believing that God is good and that he can really be trusted. And in the, the thought of this, the author gave a really, to me, an impactful illustration. He told the story of one day he was sitting on his back porch, and he's got, got his lawn, and he has a hedge along the backyard that um, on the other side was a, a large area of open space, when all of a sudden, under the hedge, there came uh, the head of a puppy or a young dog. And it was obvious that this dog was hungry, right? It was hurting, it was thin. And so here's, he's on his porch, and he goes and he gets a bowl of food and, and water, and he puts it there. And he has a deep heart to take this puppy, this dog, and bring it comfort, sustenance, healing, and a home. He makes the invitation, right? The invitation is made. There's the food. There's the water. But for that gift to be received, the puppy has to trust, it has, it has to come to a place where it can let go at least just enough of its hurt and fear, just enough to slowly approach and receive the love that is desiring to be given. Because the man's not going to trick the dog or force it to come to him. The dog must choose. And when it does, the gift of love and hope is waiting to be given. Friends, in a very simple way, this is a picture of God's invitation for us to trust and enter into His love, His grace, His goodness. This also illustrates an important concept of prayer that we see in the New Testament. And friends, it's this. When we see the Spirit lead the writers of the New Testament to pray for the church, and of course we see Paul do this, virtually all the New Testament writers, when we see them pray for the church and knowing that those prayers or inspired, or led by the Holy Spirit. Friends, we can know then that these are prayers that God wants to answer. I want you to think of that in terms of this. Last Sunday, we looked at the first half of Paul's great pastoral prayer for the Colossian church. And before we consider the rest, 
I want us to listen as we read the entire prayer and think in the midst of life as it really is. What are the gifts that we see here that God is desiring to give? This is a prayer that God desires to answer, that is in the heart of God to answer. If we will have ears to hear, hearts of faith, and hearts to trust. So I'm reading the, the prayer in its entirety from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And Paul prays, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. I'll just pause. Friends, that's what we looked at last week. And if you missed last week's message, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it. But Paul continues. So, growing in the knowledge of God, now verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. My friends, this is a prayer, a truth that God desires to give, right? to answer. He wants us to receive and experience His goodness. So picking up where we left off, in verse 11, Paul here is praying. What we see here, Paul is praying, first of all, that we would be strengthened. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might. <laughs> All right, friends, that's an incredible thing to say. I mean, Paul is praying that we, that you and I, would know the strength of all God's power, the might of his glory. I mean, what does that even mean? I mean, how is that possible? And just to make sure we understand that this isn't just some one-off prayer, like Paul got a bit emotional here, we see him pray virtually the same thing in the book of Ephesians, twice. In Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, Paul prays. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. For that power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Friends, did you catch that? You see, the Spirit here leads Paul to pray that we would know in our own lives the power of God that raised Christ from the dead, that we would know resurrection power. Now, in Ephesians 3, the second great pastoral prayer that we see in Ephesians, um, we see Paul praying. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You know, I think of this in my own life. How could a person like me, with my own weakness and frailty, begin to possess and experience the fullness of the power of God? 
My friends, here's the thing. Just honestly, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. You know, we could sit down with a stack of commentaries and come up with different theological possibilities. But when it comes down to it, this is part of the mystery into which God calls us. But here's what we can know with certainty. God calls us to pray this way, to pray for each other, that we would be strengthened with his power, that we would receive by faith the fullness of grace that we need for each day. You know, a problem we have in Christian culture is that we like to claim promises that God simply hasn't made. You know, we're never promised life's going to be easy or even that we will be delivered from our momentary troubles. But God has promised to provide us the strength, the grace, His power and presence for each day, for each step of life, for where we are in this moment right now. And if we look through the New Testament, we will see different purposes for trusting and receiving the strength that God wants to give. And you know, on one hand, it's just to know the fullness of God's love. That's what he prays in that second prayer in Ephesians. That we would be strengthened in our faith. That we would persevere in struggles. That we would be strengthened in our words and deeds. We see those in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And also we see Paul praying in another place that we would know the power, that we would be strengthened by God to be protected from the influence of the enemy. And here in this passage, Paul is praying that these Colossian believers, and by extension through all the years, for us, that we may know God's strength so we may possess endurance and patience. Again in verse 11, Paul prays that we would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Okay, as on the surface, this might this prayer might make us a little nervous. I mean, if Paul prays we would have great endurance and patience, this means we likely are to face circumstances where we are going to need great endurance and patience. You see, but that is Paul's point. We do need endurance and patience. This is the nature of life, and God never asks us to pretend otherwise. Now, we pretend around each other all the time, but God never asks us to pretend. Now, I want to look at this here. There's a subtle difference between endurance and patience. One of my commentaries pointed this out. Endurance, excuse me, endurance is the power to persevere when dealing with challenging and difficult circumstances. You know, to have endurance in the midst of an illness or work, things beyond our control. Patience, on the other hand, points to the power to persevere when dealing with difficult people. And sometimes, as you may well know, we need patience in the midst of our endurance. You see, this is just so practical. You know, in the case of Paul's actual writing to these believers, it's most likely he was thinking of the endurance and patience that they would need in the face of the false teaching that they were facing right then and the persecution that would be coming in the next several years. But friends, this is a principle that reaches into all of life. You see, when we set our hearts and minds on the miracle of what God has done, what is true of us, for us, in Christ, this will be a powerful source of endurance, patience, faithfulness, and peace. I mean, remember what Jesus said to his disciples on the night that he was arrested. I'm reading here from John 14, verses 26 and 27. And Jesus said, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. 
Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. So do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Just a little later in the evening, in what we know as chapter 16, Jesus said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Right? Great endurance and patience. God provides it by bringing us into an experience of his strength, of his power. An amazing thing to, amazing thing to think about. Now, having prayed that the believer will know this supernatural source of endurance and patience, Paul prays something completely counterintuitive, at least from a human perspective. As there are multiple things counterintuitive about New Testament teaching, but this just might be the central counterintuitive thought. And it's that in the midst of circumstances that will require great, not just some, but great endurance and patience, that we, at the same time, will be filled with gratitude and joy. Verse 12, Paul says, "...and giving joyful thanks to the Father, that we would be filled, that we would know great endurance and patience, and giving, in the midst of that, giving joyful thanks to the Father." Now again, this isn't some one-off statement by Paul. This was one of those great themes, one of those great commands of the New Testament when it comes to our ongoing relationship with God. And one of the most famous examples of this is a scripture that we actually looked at last week. And it's Philippians chapter 4. And I'm going to start at verse 6, where Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, right before that is where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And when he says, Don't be anxious about anything, why would he say that? Because he knew that they were anxious about many, many things. And he says, But pray, bring it to God, and do it with thanksgiving. Now, if there's something we need to acknowledge here, there are times when that statement there in Philippians 4 and what Paul prays in Colossians 1, where it doesn't just seem impossible. It may seem absurd, maybe even angering. Well, I mean, let me just tell you something. In just the past week, I've spoken with close friends, some here in our church family, who have lost parents, taken their child to the hospital in an absolute situation of crisis, described how they fear their child's marriage is collapsing, that was a different family, experiencing a crisis in their business, right? someone else, another person facing a significant surgery, another dealing with deep depression, and then another young couple who are about to move into their sixth temporary place to live in six weeks. And guys, I could go on. There are times when life is hard. And yet I'll tell you, in each of those circumstances that I just mentioned, these believers have confessed in a few instances, through tears and deep emotional agony, their deep, profound gratitude for the presence of God and the hope they possess in Christ. And even though only one of them voiced it, because I know them, I know that also deep within them, there is a taproot into the heart of God that is nourishing them with a powerful presence of a joy and peace that is beyond understanding. You see, my friends, in our human nature, our intuitive thought is that gratitude and joy are emotions that we derive from having positive circumstances. And, of course, in a temporary sense, they are. 
But the great counterintuitive of hope in Christ is that gratitude and joy are precious gifts we possess in our hearts. I mean, like inexhaustible power cells that are brought to life by faith, bringing their very real light into our very real circumstances. And lest we think that Paul is all talk here, he now prays that these believers, you and I, okay, would understand the reason we have such great reason to be filled with gratitude and joy. And as he concludes his prayer, Paul describes four realities that are foundational to our patience, our endurance, our gratitude, and our joy. The first is that when it comes to being part of the greater reality of God's kingdom, is that we have been qualified. Second half of verse 12, Paul says, So giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Friends, even for those of us who know this, who have, have studied this and, and wrestled with this, we, we just have to pause, think, and pray for the, the understanding to begin to grasp just how miraculous this is. You see, a core tenet of biblical New Testament theology is that in the human condition, apart from the mercy of God, all of humanity is separated from God, enslaved by the power of sin, and spiritually dead. This is the result of the fall, right? Going all the way back into Genesis chapter 3. And friends, the evidence of this is simply human history. And then, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the fullness of God and the exact representation of God's being, right? Jesus is God. In Christ, God defeated death and made the way, opened the door, paved the road for humanity to be reconciled to God, meaning to be brought back into union with our Creator, to be set free from the slavery of sin and given new spiritual life. Friends, this is the invitation, the possibility that stands before all humanity in Christ to be brought from death to life. And not just for heaven when we die, but right now. Now, just a, a few scriptures that speak to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, verse 22, uh, Paul writes, he says, for, it's in Adam, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In Christ, God makes this possible. In Ephesians 1, 9-11, says, He has made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He sat forth in Christ, regarding His plan for of the fullness of times to bring all things together in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. For in Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with the plan of his will. Oh, friends, there is so much there. But do you hear the theme? Because of what God has done in Christ, in the mystery of our surrender and our response of faith, God has given our lives a new quality. We have been qualified by God to be born anew into his family, to be brought together in Christ. And we have no place of moral and religious pride because this gift of our adoption into God's family is something that God did. Not us. God did it. 
In Titus 3, verses 3 and 4, um, Paul writes, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love our God for humanity, our Savior, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, the kindness and love of God for all humanity, one translation renders it, right? When He appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. My friends, my point with all of that is, if we even begin to comprehend the reality, the magnitude of this miracle of God's grace, that He did everything to make it possible for us to be brought back to Him, He has qualified us. It will bring us to our knees in gratitude and in joy. And so God has qualified us. Right? The actually underlying Greek word has the idea that he has fitted us. He has made us fit to receive and to enter into an inheritance. So still in verse 12, it says that he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. So let's talk about this idea of inheritance a little bit more because this is actually a huge New Testament concept. But just a few thoughts here. Okay, guys, what is this inheritance? Well, first thought is that it's not just personal. You know, there's a temptation in Christian culture to think of our inheritance, our reward um, for being people of Christ, being faithful people, as something that God gives to us and that we possess for our benefit in a very individualistic sense, right? That this is something that will be mine, the image here and throughout the New Testament is that our inheritance, in, our inheritance in Christ, it's not just individualistic. Rather, it is communal. It is shared. It is something we enter into with all other believers and share with all other believers. The redeemed community together experiencing our participation in the presence of God. Now, in one reality, this inheritance is in the future. It is, as we would say, the eternity awaiting us when we depart this earth and enter into the presence of God, right? Heaven when we die. And this is the not yet of our hope. But this inheritance is also the already of our hope. It is now. You know, inheritance of a new source of living, where we're no longer bound to legalistic motivation, but the motivation of love. And by the way, if you think that sounds squishy, Guys, it is not. We also have today the inheritance of contentment, if we will receive it. We have the inheritance of freedom, freedom to lay down our masks, to be ourselves, to stop performing for acceptance, freedom from fear and insecurity. Again, if we will receive it and grow in it as we grow in our trust of God and of Christ. We have the inheritance of being a part of the family of faith, the church, a local relational community of people who love one another, serve together, make each other's lives better, even when we drive each other crazy. We have the inheritance, my friends, of being the presence of God's goodness and love and His kindness in this world, in the lives of the people around us, our circle of influence. And then Paul says this, verse 13, "...for He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness." and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. My friends, in Christ, we have been rescued. Think about that. What does that word imply? 
Well, it means that we couldn't save ourselves. It means that God is the one who had to take the initiative. We cooperated, but God made the rescue happen. He did it. Which, my friends, if we consider this, remember this, this will grow within us a perspective of humility, gratitude, and joy. But we just haven't been rescued from darkness. I mean, Paul goes on from here. We have also been brought into light. Wow, there's so much here in this text. But friends, simply, the miracle of salvation isn't just that we have been delivered from the consequence of sin. Of course, that is beyond our ability to comprehend on its own. But it's not just that we have been saved from hell. I mean, this is how the gospel has been presented by many, by most, in fact, for ages and ages. But the great message of the gospel is both what we have been delivered from and much more the life and the new reality we have been delivered into. Now, a subtle note here. Paul says that we, have, that we were rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son he loves, the kingdom of light. So we have here these two, these two concepts, dominion and kingdom. And it's important for us to realize that these are not equal and opposite things. They are very different. So we have the dominion of darkness, this idea of dominion. And its use here, this refers to a power, an influence. Now, it is a terrible power. It is dominating, but it is a power ultimately without a home. And it's a power whose time is limited. You see, the dominion of darkness did not create this world. It does not own this world, nor sustain this world. Satan and the curse of human brokenness has sway in this world right now. Great power. But that is not the last word. In contrast, what we have been brought into isn't just a temporary dominion. It is a kingdom. It is the kingdom of Jesus Christ who did create this world, who does own this world, who does sustain this world, and in his time will bring restoration to this world. Think back into the early days of Acts. At the end of Peter's second sermon, he said, A time will come for God to restore everything, as promised long ago through his holy prophets. And my friends, this is our great hope. And this hope that in Christ all of creation will be restored, this is also the hope of redemption. And Paul ends his prayer by reminding us that this redemption, our restoration to God, is something that has already happened. In Christ, we have been redeemed. In verse 14, Paul concludes this great prayer by saying, in whom, referring back to Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, friends, to redeem something means to gain possession of something in exchange for payment, right? The clearing of a debt. And here in a larger sense, much larger sense, the action of buying one's freedom. And this is what Christ has done. And the debt paid is the forgiveness of sin. Now, the way Paul says this here is key. He says we have redemption. We possess redemption. It is now the state, the condition in which we live. We haven't just been forgiven up to this point. In Christ, we are forgiven people. You see, redemption isn't just something Christ did for us in the past, although it is. It is a foundational part of our identity in Christ right now and ongoing, without ceasing. 
Friends, next week, our worship service is going to focus around the celebration of communion. And what we're going to do is take that opportunity to explore what this means. The absolute magnitude of this truth that in Christ, through what he accomplished through his death and resurrection, we are fully and completely forgiven. That we are the redeemed. Because we look, we, we, we don't, we lose sight of this, and in our culture today, especially to say that you're for, to someone that God God will forgive you in Christ, we are forgiven. This sometimes has very little meaning because we've lost maybe lost our ability to articulate it, or we just don't really stop and think about the fullness of what forgiveness from God in Christ, totally, forever, what this really means. And so we're going to push into that next week. But my friends, I want to end with this. In the 1870s, a young itinerant evangelist, musical evangelist, named Philip Bliss wrote a hymn that would become a beloved confession of this great hope. And it's still sung in many churches to this day, 150 years later. And the hymn is, I will sing of my Redeemer. And listen to what he, sa- he, he, he writes. Some of you may, may know this. I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross he suffered, from the curse he set me free. So sing, O sing of my Redeemer, for with his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. My friends, this is our truth. And this is the prayer with which Paul opens his letter to these Colossian believers, praying that they would know They would increasingly understand and live in the good, the strength, the gratitude, and the joy of that truth. May it be said of us. 